Hello and welcome to the Travelling Through podcast. I'm your host Emma and each week I'm Am out and about chatting to Londoners and those who love, live and work in this big and glorious city. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure to catch up with Richard Lapper. Richard spent much time in Central and South America as a journalist in various guises and following various topics. And he has recently published a book entitled Beef, Bible and Bullets. And this is all set in Brazil and follows particularly the life of or the time of Bolsonaro in power, which he still is. At the time of recording this episode, Richard sadly had learned of the death of his very good friend Dom Phillips, who was murdered in the Amazon, alongside Bruno Pereira. The two of them were great supporters of the Amazon, protecting it and the indigenous people. And this episode is therefore dedicated to both Dom Phillips and Bruno Pereira. I've had to split this episode into two parts due to the fact that we had so much to talk about. This first part of the recording is set at Richard's apartment in Wapping in the east of London, right by the Thames. And in the second part, we also carry on our discussion about Brazil, politics, about populism and many other topics as we walk and talk through various areas of East London, which became his kind of stamping ground while he was writing the book during the lockdown period. Anyway, without further ado, this podcast is about Richard's thoughts on London, the world and life. Hello everyone, this is the Travelling Through podcast and I am sitting in the living room with Richard Lapper. Hello Richard. Hello there. And Richard Lapper is a journalist uh, or former journalist with the Financial Times, is that correct, Richard? Former, but still a journalist. But still a journalist. A, doing right? a bit of journalism, yeah. a bit of consultancy, and, writing. And we originally met about four years ago um, at an art exhibition uh, with Alan Marsh, who I have also podcast chatted with. And we bumped into each other once again at an event with, with Alan just two, less than two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, um, where it was a delight to see you again because I, I was regretted the fact that we hadn't stayed in contact, but obviously the bookshop closed and then we had COVID and lockdowns. And yeah. in that time frame, you've written a book entitled Beef, Bible and Bullets about Brazil and Bolsonaro. So many um, alliterations there. <laughs> so many bees, so many bees. And that came out last year in 2021, and a paperback has just come out in the last yeah. month or so. Yeah. Um, so it seemed very relevant to to podcast chat with you at this moment. Uh, and then sadly, within the 10 days that we, we haven't seen each other, um, your good friend Dom Phillips has been murdered. I suppose there's no better way to put it. In, in, in the Amazon uh, and bringing to light that whole issue about the Amazon deforestation and something that actually you talk about in the book. And I think for this podcast, I suppose it would be very nice to dedicate this podcast to him and his family um, and to everybody who, 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 knows, who knows him as yeah, I think that's right. And also perhaps to Bruno Pereira, and who was Bruno also Pereira. murdered. Uh, Bruno was a, uh, an indigenous uh, specialist, a specialist in indigenous affairs in Brazil, mm -hmm. and had been, um, had been taking Dom uh, to the Valle de Javari in the extreme 
west of Brazil in the Amazonas state, the border with Colombia and Peru. Yes. Um, did you know Bruno as well? I didn't as know Bob? Bruno, but I did know I did know Dom extremely well. Um, my wife taught Dom Portuguese when he first came to Brazil in 2007 when we were we were living in Sao Paulo. Yes. Uh, Brazil's biggest city, Sao Paulo, and we were living there. And Dom came. Dom was writing a book about electronic music um, at the time. He'd been editor of a publication called Mix Mag, rather oddly. But okay, anyway, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So he's a bit of a figure yes. in relation to the the, the music scene in yes. London, in Britain, really in the nineties, uh, writing about raves and such like. And he'd written this book about DJs and was finishing it off and wanted, I think, to come somewhere different to to do you know just to, to align time to write it mm-hmm. um and he got into journalism uh we helped him a bit um and he did do some work for the ft i was a latin america editor at the ft uh financial times at the time and dom did some pieces for us and he he worked for me again later in 2011-12 when i was doing a kind of different sort of product for the for the ft but he really got Writing very regularly for The Guardian. Right. Um, moved to Rio and then very recently moved to Salvador. But we, we'd, we'd had very close contact. I mean, he'd, he'd helped me an awful lot with a book, with, with the Bible and Bullets. He'd been a really, really helpful comments and some uh, major suggestions uh, for the latter part of the book. And, and I'd helped him with his Amazon reporting project had been a referee for the for the grant that he got. Okay. So, you know, we were very friendly. I mean, both, both my wife, Fatima, and, and, and I had been very friendly with, with Dom and his Brazilian wife, who's also like my wife from Salvador in the yeah. northeast of Brazil. So, you know, it does, it did hit very hard. Actually, Dom disappeared on the 5th, on the 5th of June, um, so the Sunday before we met, but when we met in again in, in uh, at Allen's, he, he'd not, his death had not been confirmed no, at that stage. He no. just disappeared, and yes. of course, what happened early last week was that it was confirmed. I think on the, initially on the basis of the dental records that the two men who died were were Dom and Bruno. Yes, yes. And you know, we've obviously we're still trying to work out exactly how that happened, and um, you know, it, 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 at this stage, it's um, it, it, all we can say is that. You know um, why they died. As I, I suppose that you know that the, the sort of lawlessness of this part of Brazil uh, is a lot to do with you know the form its development has taken in the last fifty or sixty years. Yeah, yeah, yes. So that it has certainly put the spotlight even more so on Brazil. I mean, Bolsonaro himself has certainly. In his own in the in his own way of being, and certainly through COVID, has put a another kind of spotlight on on Brazil as well. But maybe we we'll touch on that sure. when we go out and walk and talk, um, because we're at at the moment we're in, in Wapping, yeah. and and we're, we've got a beautiful view, or you have a beautiful view of the River Thames here. Yeah. Um, and the room in which we're sitting is very much. Uh, Got a got a flavour, a very strong flavour of Brazil, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so it must have your wife's influence to a large extent, yeah. but also you, I imagine too, for yeah, I mean, living there for. I suppose it's it's not just Brazil; time. it's 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 the places that I've worked as a journalist, and and you know, for the last, you know, we've been married for the last uh, 
20, 20, 22 years really. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of Brazilian stuff that we've accumulated. Um, I mean, there's a lot of Brazilian, there's a lot of African stuff, there's a lot of stuff from Mexico, Central America, places I've also worked. Um, you know, the sort of textiles from Peru. Um, this, is, this is a piece of popular art from Minas Gerais State in Brazil. On, on the other wall there, there's a Mexican, there's a, there's a, a painting of Mexico City. Yeah. So this one that you were in Minas Gerais is, is of like lots of women. One, two, three, four, five, in, a, in almost like a window grill yeah. frame and a little a woman in each. Um, they all look very... Healthy on the, on the fat side, should I say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's right, <laughs> on, yeah. on the very ultra healthy side, yeah, uh, or yeah. well fed side. Um, but does that represent anything, or is it just meant no, to be? No, I kind think of it's like just a, a piece of popular art that you know the popular sculpture that um, is is really just just as a, as a part of the sort of grassroots culture in Brazil, really, in rural areas, really. It's not. It's not modern. I mean, it's it's it's. We're going back. I guess. I mean, I guess we acquired it twenty years ago. But this is something that probably dates back, you know, a hundred years or so, maybe. Um, okay. You know, it's, it's kind of it's the art of rural towns. What Brazilians called the big interior or the okay. interiorzão. You know, oh, this is the yeah, yeah. the sort of quite conservative part of Brazil. That's um, you know traditional. Um, Traditional lifestyles, um, fairly agricultural, mm -hmm. you know, farming communities, market towns, that sort of thing. Um, you know, on the other on the other wall there, there's a piece of modern art from Brazil, which you know is an abstract, and you know is is perhaps more representative of culture in Sao Paulo or, 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 or Rio. You know, big yeah. modern metropolitan cities. Yes, and that's actually a combination of one, two, three, four five by two framed um, uh, pictures or paintings of, of almost like a nucleus or something. Yeah, they kind of look like COVID viruses, don't they, or something, you know, sort of in different colours. But one thing that's very, very, um, very a similarity between everything that's on, on your walls is colour. And colour is such an integral part of, of South America, where, whether it's... Um, rugs or paintings or um, sculptures it, it, it very much frames the, the 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 being of of south americans generally would you say i think that's absolutely right emma i mean i think you know when i first went to latin america in the very late 1970s um, the thing you first notice is this incredible density of primary colors mm. everywhere you look Things are kind of very vivid. Yeah. The the, I was going to say they're very black and white. They're not black and white. They're very <laughs> <Quite> colourful. <laughs> um, yeah. They're also black and white in a different sense, I think. Or okay. well, they certainly seem to be at the time. Uh, but but it was that sort of. I suppose that this is there's a sort of um, sensual attraction to the colour. It's yeah. very very bright. Um, Phil Kelly, the Mexican artist who painted. That painting there yes. on, on the on just behind That's us, fabulous of a, of a which car is a picture there. of Mexico City, and it, it, it for me it kind of sums up that sort of vib vibrancy of the primary colours in yeah. an urban setting. Yes, um, yeah. you know, and the the just the endless. It, it, it's kind of slightly chaotic. Latin American cities 
are, you know, they developed extremely quickly over mm. the past hundred years. I mean, Latin America now is largely urban, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so areas like the the Valle de Javari, where where we, which are, which are, you know, our Dom was was murdered, are, are not that. That's not the standard Latin America. The standard Latin America cities, because mm-hmm. you know, Brazil. Mexico, they're sort of well, Brazil in particular, 80 90% urban nowadays. Really, that much? Okay. So it's really become, and, and, and the kind of ur- and the kind of urbanism is it's very unplanned mm-hmm. and it tends to be very, very chaotic. Um, and you know, but there's still that sort of because of the climate, because of um, because of the climate. There's a there is a sort there's a there's a that primary sense about it yeah mm-hmm. and um, your your initial so so coming back to, to yeah. when you 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 why we're here in Wapping as well so you spent um, a lot of time much time in in South America Central America South Africa and then came back to London as it were um, but did you actually live in London before you went out there or was this is this very much your first yeah, uh, experience of London. When I say, well, having said that, you've been back here for how long? So, like so just to, I mean, just very, very quickly. You know, I was born in Sheffield in in South Yorkshire in in England, so I'm a northerner. Um, I left, went to grammar school. You know, sort of working class background. Went to grammar school, then to university. When I went to university, the first thing, like most kids of that age, I wanted to do was get away from home. Went to Liverpool to study. Yes. And I eventually studied sociology, which at that stage in the early 1970s was a pretty radical course. It was essentially, you know, an induction into Marxism. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that, uh, really, I got into Latin America because, right. uh, you know, uh, one of our courses in, in my third year at university was, uh, I think it was described as imperialism and the social structure. Okay. So, you know, not exactly a, you know, a sort of a, a fairly value-laden assessment, yeah. right, of, yeah. of what was going on in Latin America, you know, very much bound up with something called dependency theory, mm-hmm. that uh, whose, whose starting point was that Latin American's problems were um, started from its relationship to the wealthy countries of the North, you know, mm-hmm. the metropolis. And that its development had been had been skewed by right. its relationship to the north, um, and you know we looked at the way in which countries had tried to freed themselves from that dependency. Um, places like Cuba in the late nineteen fifties, and then Chile, which had a big influence on me because Chile's efforts to free itself from dependency through the Allende regime. Mm-hmm in the early 70s were thwarted by the coup that was led by, uh, by Pinochet and mm-hmm. the military in Chile in 1973. A lot of Chilean refugees came over at that stage and I met many of them in Liverpool. In, in Liverpool, really? Yeah, there were, there were quite a few and I actually shared an office with a Chilean refugee when I started a, a, an MA, a postgraduate course at, uh, at university in, 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 in Latin American studies. Um, and I guess, you know, this was quite politicizing in a way. And I, I found myself in the 70s active on the left and, and quite active in causes linked to Latin America. And at that point, had you spent much time in Latin America or was your experience very much um, dominated by 
those who had come over and therefore therefore it was through someone else's experience that you were yeah. gaining yours as it were that's fair to say i mean i, th I think i saw um i mean i i think i saw latin america as something of a, a sort of morality tale you know this mm -hmm. is this you know what was not so clear in britain in post-war britain in terms of you know sort of class struggle and and, and, and many of these marxist concepts that helped you understand what was going on. It wasn't really that clear in Britain. Your evolution seemed a long way away. But in, in Latin America, uh, it all seemed pretty immediate. Um, so, you know, Chile seemed to prove that, you know, society was incredibly divided, that, you know, one classes had very distinct interests and so on. So it proved a lot of the things. And it was it was something to identify with. Yeah. And, and I found that... It's very compelling, you know. It's very, it's very seductive. The, mm -hmm. um, the sort of left-wing vision of Latin America. I became quite active uh, on that, and, and I really got into journalism as an indirect result. I'd, I'd um, started work for, uh, I suppose, something that might be called nowadays a resource centre in, in the late seventies, mm -hmm. um, which was was being formed around by by people in the Chile Solidarity Campaign. Um, and, and through that, I, first of all, I went to Latin America yes. and, and learned Spanish in Guatemala. Okay, yes. Which was also quite convulsive at the time and very divided. And, you know, the sort of, uh, that this was, I went there just a few months actually after the uh, Nicaraguan Revolution in 1979. I traveled in, went to El Salvador, went to Nicaragua. So this is all kind of a, this was right on the middle of this. Um, quite um, conflictive, quite violent process. Turbulent, <laughs> very turbulent as well. Yeah, very time. turbulent. Yeah. And then, you know, in the, and I started about a year later working for a publication that had supported the Resource Centre, which was called Latin America Newsletter. And that's how I got into journalism. I went to Latin America for them as a correspondent and, and spent about two years there in the early 1980s, really covering, you know, the sort of civil wars in... Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua wrote a, a not very good book about Honduras um, in 1984. And that's, I'd, I'd kind of, I suppose it was on the back of that experience, really, that I began to shift my views, actually. Mm -hmm. Just because you were in the field and you were able to see another side? Or is it just, just your... I think you began to realise how complex and how different these processes were, mm -hmm. that, you know... Somewhere like Costa Rica, uh, which you know left wingers like to write off, seemed to be quite a nice place in many ways. You yeah. seemed to work better. Yeah, they got a welfare state. Um, it was it was a place that was more cohesive. And you know why was that? You know why was Honduras not following the same path as these other countries? Um, and also, I think that when you started to look at bigger countries in Latin America, as I had began to do in the eighties particularly to Mexico, mm -hmm. you know, Mexico's historic development was, you know, very, very different, you know, and, and, and the, the kind of corporatism that had been established in Mexico really from the 1930s and 40s through the domination of this, the, the pre, the, 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 the institutional revolutionary party okay. seemed to be something quite difficult for you know, the sort of orthodox left to deal with, really. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that was one thing. And I think also 
you know, back in the UK where I lived really in the 1980s, you know, I, I suppose became somewhat disillusioned with the left um, and and especially the left of the Labour Party, which I joined in 1983. Mm. And the kind of, you know, the kind of things they were trying to do just seemed to me to be completely inapplicable to the situation we were in. And it was, it was kind of, it was, it was, it was very, a very wooden approach to politics. Um, I, the minor strike in 1984, three, four, five, you know, four, five, I think, just yesterday watching a BBC, very good BBC drama, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, Sherwood, yeah. Oh, uh, okay, I haven't seen that the yet. The backlot is the minor strike. It's yes. Not, it's a contemporary uh, drama, but it's it's got a lot of references back to the visions of the minor strike. Um, but, you know, the miners entered that strike divided and mm. through mistakes of the hard left, essentially, mm -hmm. I think. And, you know, my sympathies at that stage were with the more the softer left. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd started off very much on the hard left. And I just thought they weren't winning. Mm. Um, and there were other experiences that contributed towards that, to my identification with a, a softer left position and actually eventually with a kind of Blairism, I must say. Mm -hmm. And do you think that was also um, influenced by the fact that what was going on in terms of being left in in uh, Central and South America was a very different kind of left that's that that is considered to be left here, and and there was there was a polarity. I don't know if that's right or not. Not a polarity between the two, um, which made you think that 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 it didn't make that that you that you were divided in because the differences were so so great or am I yeah. just putting words in no, your no, mouth? It's, it's, I think there's something about that. I mean I, I was certainly you know I went to Cuba in nine eighty three for on a reporting trip. Right. Uh and it, it was pretty dreadful, mm. uh I thought. I mean many ways. It was I mean the, there were things to admire about it, but it was a very uncomfortable place to be. And I thought that you know, this was Cuba not after the collapse of the Soviet Union. This was a Cuba that was apparently prospering, you mm. know, with the backing of the Soviet Union. This is 83. So, you know, Cuba at that stage is massively subsidized by the, the sugar regime. Yes. Um, but, you know, there were tremendous shortages of stuff. Uh, you know, it was, it was falling apart. It, you know, there were clearly elements of Cuba that didn't work. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you know, that's become much more manifest in, you know, the period since 1990 because the place is, you know, gradually, you know, it, it, there's some there are things to admire about Cuba, you know, and I, I, the spirit of the people and their togetherness, the unity. Uh, but there is a problem economically. It doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. And I think that was first apparent to me in, in, in 1983. Uh, Nicaragua, I think, was you know has become a bit of a disaster as a left-wing regime. Now, um, the the current president Daniel Ortega is really leading the country back towards the kind of dictatorship that he struggled as a Sandinista guerrilla to overthrow mm. in 1979, and it, it's a it's a very authoritarian regime. And I think there were signs of that. 
in the 80s, um, which, you know, were becoming apparent that it wasn't, again, it wasn't really, the, the model they were trying to develop wasn't working very well. A lot of people were very unhappy with it. Yeah, yeah. And those, that, that discontent was, you know, sort of pushed under the carpet, really. Mm-hmm. So I think that there were, there were, there were signs of that. I mean, it, clearly that was all has to be nuanced because, you know, in the 1980s, there was a, a covert, heavily supported U.S. covert campaign to overthrow the Sandinistas, and they fought very valiantly to do, to, to, against that um, and eventually lost power, not through a military defeat, but at the elections in 1990, uh, and then regained office, you know, some years later in a, a, a Essentially, a derivation of that regime is still there, but you know now what's happened is they've gone completely full circle mm. back towards the kind of authoritarianism that that the left is very prone to criticise mm-hmm. when it has a you know a right wing facade. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, in your book, and it's something that we'll come on to later, I think, but talking about populism and and also authoritarianism almost running side by side, integrated under the umbrella of being a populist yeah. Uh, yeah. prime minister. And it's not specific to South America. It seems to be happening in, in Europe too, in, a, in, a, in, a, in more of a covert way perhaps. But um, perhaps that's something we can yeah. talk about in a, in a bit. But yeah. coming back to... to um, so you spent time in South America through the 80s and 90s. And then, and then when, did your, when, did, when was your first kind of mission to Brazil as such? Well, by, in 1990, I started working at the Financial Times. Okay. Um, and, I, and I was, you know, I, did, I, did, I, I worked as a, a reporter on, on financial stuff. I was an insurance correspondent for four years and wrote about bond markets. I was writing about finance. Um, I'd done some of that as a, on a freelance basis in the 80s, mainly just to earn a, a living, really. Yeah. And, but, but one of my, you know, I... Throughout that period, I was learning fantastic amounts about journalism and a fantastic amount about how, how you know, a capitalist economy functions, mm-hmm. which I don't think I'd been properly aware of before. Um, and in um, 1998, I was lucky enough to get a job that I'd, I'd always kind of wanted at the Financial Times, which was that of Latin America editor, which was essentially a kind of player manager. On, in Latin America, where you managed a network of correspondence and also went out and wrote yourself and wrote editorials. And it was a great job, um, which I did for 10 years. Okay, yeah. Um, and actually had to learn um, uh, Portuguese as well. Yeah, and I, I'd learned Spanish in 79. Yes. And in uh, 1998, I started Portuguese classes uh, with my teacher, who, was, who subsequently became my wife, Fatima. Uh, who's Brazilian from from Bahia. So from that period onwards, I began to get more engaged with Brazil. I mean, what was happening at the in the late nineties, and the big story for us at the time at the paper was the gradual that the crises that uh, free market Latin America began to suffer. I mean, mm-hmm. Latin America had taken a turn towards a kind of privatized now neoliberal model in the late 80s, in the mid to late 80s. And this had happened across the board. You know, this is Mexico, Argentina, you know, Peru, Bolivia, all these countries, Brazil, all these countries had adopted in one way or another market-based economies. Um, They democratized in the 80s. So Latin America had gone through a period of military government Mm -hmm. where most countries were under military rule. 
with one or two exceptions, but there'd been this move towards democratization in the 80s. When I was started writing about it in the 90s, that the free market economies that started were hitting problems. Okay. They'd begun to sort of tackle in the 90s the big problem of inflation and the big problems of, they were beginning to stabilize. Mm. They've been very unstable places in the 80s, become more and more unequal. In the 90s, they began to stabilize, and this was regarded as a big success. Um, but in, nine, in the late 90s, they had a number of, uh, there were a number of crises where things looked as if, the, as if they were falling apart. Mm -hmm. These crises, and this is simplifying matters a fair of bit, course, right? Yes. But these crises eventually led to the election of center-left governments mm -hmm. that both tried to continue with the stabilization, mm. but also tried to do a bit more redistribution. Okay. And that period coincided with the rise of commodity prices, particularly with the rise of China into the world economy. Okay, yes. And that That's had a huge player. impact for Latin America, yeah, right? Yeah. Because Latin America is a huge producer of what China wants. Mm. For instance, mm -hmm. the three big products, copper from Chile and Peru, um, soya from Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, um, and an oil. Yes, a big and, one. Oh. And actually a four big product, I should say. So, uh, there's also <laughs> iron ore, right? Iron ore, yes. Iron ore. Yes. All these things were hugely important for um, both for China's industry, uh, its urbanization drive, yes. but also for, for feeding uh, its, 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 its rapidly urbanizing population. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that gave a huge lift for, for Latin America in the 2000s um, until it all started to... Um, fall apart a bit in the 2010s. Mm -hmm. But I was covering the region really for the FT during this period. So it's quite an interesting period. First the crises of the, the free market model, then the adaptation of the free market model, the election of people like Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who's a former yeah. trade union leader who could well become president of Brazil later this year, but he was president between 2002 and 2010. Yeah. Of, of Nestor Kirchner in Argentina, Evo Morales in Bolivia, Hugo Chavez in, 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 in Venezuela. All these people are very much the figures of the 2000s. And I, I met most of them at one time or another, um, had a ringside seat for all that. Mm. And, and so it was quite an exciting period. And as well as as well as being on, on the sort of like the political side and, and following it from a journalistic perspective it also gave you an opportunity to travel quite widely too to be able to because you spoke the language I imagine fluently you were able to actually gauge how the people were how the people were feeling and what they were thinking and and or were you very much um, seen as a foreigner and therefore uh, they kept their opinions to themselves how, how was the relationship with, think, with the people I think it's on quite an interesting question I mean I so I was based in London from 98 until 2003. In 2003, um, for various reasons, we, we, saw, we asked the paper if we could live in Brazil, yes. uh, Fatima and I. And the reason for that was that essentially the jet lag was doing my head in. <laughs> yeah, you need to be in one place. I was traveling, you know, I'd be traveling for a week, be coming back one week, staying in London for 10 days. I'd be preparing to travel again. It was just, 
And yeah, I, you know, I'd spend serious, I'd spend most of my time getting over jet lag in one continent uh, or another. Yeah. And and so we just thought, look, it'd be much better. And, and you know, we were moving towards you know something that's become much more pronounced over the last two or three years. You know, virtual working where yeah. you don't really need to be in the place and you can you can do things. And it was less. It was much more difficult in the two thousands, I think. But mm. as you know, you know, you must have found that when you know you were yeah. in the Balkans and so on. But we we managed to 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 persuade them, and we went to Sao Paulo uh, and worked with our correspondent in Sao Paulo. We had a and and, and I I was based in Sao Paulo, but I travelled a lot all the time, you know. So I was constantly in and out of the Brazil. Um, and, and really everywhere in the region, mm. um, you know, probably six, seven months a year, actually, is a bit manic. Yeah, gosh, that's crazy, isn't it? But I suppose having a Brazilian wife certainly integrated you more into family life in Brazil, got you to see another side of, of life than you would have done otherwise. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Fatima's got a big family. We spent quite a bit of time in Salvador. Uh, it is a different kind of relationship, I think. You're still a foreigner, right? I mean, of you're course, still going to yeah. speak. You know, they're, they're still. You're never going to speak the language really, in the sense that they. You know, you're still going to be regarded as a foreigner speaking Portuguese. But, but yeah, definitely. I think um, I became more comfortable in Brazil, um, uh, and and also enjoyed being in in, in Spanish speaking Latin America yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and gradually, you know, you're living there a lot of the time. You you become you begin to know lots of people, and gradually the differences between Spanish and Portuguese, which <laughs> when I first started Portuguese became was a real problem, right? Yeah, because yeah. they're so similar. So they gradually begin to sort of sieve out in your head. Yes, and you yeah. begin to sort of speak one or the other rather than a mixture of both. Okay. Although some people would say I speak a mixture of both, <laughs> but anyway, I wouldn't be able to detect. <laughs> <laughs> but has it? Having been in that region for such, so so I'm jumping ahead again. Yeah. So you spent a lot, quite a lot of time in in Brazil, and then you've come back to London now. Almost. There's a bit of an interregnum because I had yeah. to. I got a. You can't do these. These jobs are so good. You other people want to do them. You can't do them forever. Yes. So I I did it for ten years, which was a, a pretty long stint, and and then I <clears throat> was offered another job in South Africa for the paper, which was also a great experience because it introduced me to another continent and somewhere else that had been fairly significant as a political story back in my days of left-wing activism and where um you know one saw now you know the the way that uh, south africa had developed post-apartheid and you know it, it was a fascinating experience there's a lot to to learn from that, mm. and uh, and also from you know places like Zimbabwe, which had also had, like Nicaragua, a, a, a wretched uh, experience of independence in many ways, um, and you know sort of revolutions had turned sour, um, and just as Ortega had been become something of a an autocrat, you know Mugabe too. I mean, so yeah, yeah. and frankly, Angola wasn't. A great deal more impressive either, mm. um, and and you know difficult places and you know complex transformations in these countries and and perhaps not the kind of easy transformations that one would have desired and certainly places with lots of tensions uh, and lots of conflict and and many many problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And what, what's quite interesting from from all from your whole kind of experience, you you very much uh, covered that quite a few of the BRICS country, you know, the Brazil yeah. being a major player in in that. Uh, well, was supposed to be a major player that then you've got uh, Russia and then India, China and South Africa. So yeah. you just had Russia and India. Did you did you visit those two well, countries I, as I well? I did. I mean, I've, I've visited Russia um, a couple of times. Um, I don't have a. I mean, I don't think I've got a great deal original to say about Russia. Although I think the term BRICS is a bit of an odd one in a way. It's a marketing mm. term. Yes. Above anything else, I'm not. Sh- I think there was a time, and and I suppose. When we came back from South Africa, the, the commercial guys at the FT wanted to develop a series of research reports on the BRICS because it was seen that the rise of the BRICS was changing the world economy. Yeah. So the, it's not just the rise of China; it was seen to be the rise of India. You know, it's sort of you know the world's office, the world's factory, and the world's farm. You know, Brazil, um, which were all becoming you know sort of rising up, and there was Russia, which was energy rich and South Africa, which opened up African, the African market and African resources. So these were seen as, this was all seen as a bit momentous. And we tried to develop a set of products for, the, for our customers and our better off customers, which were, were more specialized and were designed to, you know, do some of the things that purveyors of information to investment banks and co do. I mean, it was very interesting as an experience. It wasn't hugely successful, but I, I spent my last five years working on that project about the BRICS, particularly on Brazil and Latin mm. America, and mm-hmm. then to some extent too on on, on the, the broader project that included China. And that, do you think that was part of the reason it hasn't really come to anything is the expectations of where those countries uh, or the way they were going to develop hasn't actually happened because of politics and the way the world has gone and and uh, other other um, well covid has had an effect on on the whole world as well but but it i think this sort of i think this idea that there would be a kind of linear rise of you know to, to some extent back in the 2000s the kind of view that came out of financial markets was that you know you'd have a linear rise gradual increase in power of these countries and they become more and more imp- more and more successful more and more prosperous and um and it's always going to be much and, and they'd also become gradually more democratic yeah so we'd gradually get the whole world becoming the globalized world would gradually adopt the world international system and global democracy would somehow mysteriously evolve and it it's always going to be much more complex. It's than a that. model isn't it rather than yeah, a reality it's not, <laughs> not going to happen like yeah, that right yeah. i mean it never is i mean you know, I think, you know, the great American political scientist Francis Fujiyama wrote a book in the 90s called the, I think, called The End of History or something, or The Last Man, The End of History. And it, it, it posits a more optimistic vision of the world after the end of communism, right? Mm. And, you know, I think what he's written subsequently is much more nuanced. And, it, 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 you know, building democracies, building prosperous economies, fair economies, um, you know, eliminating... Poverty, corruption. tackling <laughs> corruption, tackling environment—it's gonna be—it's—it's yeah. it's gonna go on for a long time, yeah. and you know the—it's very uneven. And now all this has been complicated by the rise and the you know the, the attractions, the seductions of populism. Yes, right. Yeah. So, so in a way, that kind of globalized vision—you know—which some people would say is a, 
a kind of neoliberal technocratic vision of, of the world that it's all gonna all gonna gradually get better has been you know as as not work. But on the other hand, you know, there's this sort of the siren song of people like Trump and Putin and um Boris Johnson, um the this kind of these populist appeals um are becoming you know that you're seeing this all over the place. You know, yeah. just yesterday evening we had an election in Colombia where a left-wing populist wins against a right-wing populist and the technocratic centre, the kind of Blairites of Colombia, where are they? Nowhere. Mm. Uh, you have a situation in France where Macron, who's in a way one of the most centrist progressive leaders in Europe, um, has lost his majority in in the Congress to partially to right-wing populists. Mm. Um, so it's, it's with us, and we, we're looking at midterms in the States where Republicans are almost certain to strengthen their positions, and Trump is looking though he might win again yeah, in, um, in, in 2024. So yeah. this, is a, this, is, this story, this rise of populism is, is there. And it's, it's, so, so I think we're, we're poised between these two systems, really. Yes, and... and just in the introduction of, of your book, Beef, Bible and, and Bullets, you, you touch on this idea of populism is, is, is actually, for, for, a, for the podcast listener and for me, certainly who's not very politically you know, up to speed with things, is, it, is, um, it very much takes a very complex issue and, and makes, it simplifies it, which to me it is very dangerous as well, isn't it? And, and we've seen yeah. that. In what's happening with Bolsonaro and, and how Brazil, the take, the way Brazil has gone, but it's not just Bolsonaro's fault, is it? It was sort of kind of going that way a bit anyway. But he has accelerated the process and dismantling structures that were in place, for example, for protecting the Amazon forest, so that suddenly areas that were deemed to be protected and and had some control are suddenly uh, open to. To mass lawlessness, and 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 um, I don't know whether it's the same in in other in other countries as well in, in a different way. But that's just kind of one example. They assume, as you say, they assume that you know that there's a simple answer to every yeah. complex problem. There's a simple answer. And also, I've just simplified. But, it is, but it's, it's true. But that is true. I mean, and, yeah. and, it, and you know, they they undervalue the importance of institutions and the way people have learned to do things over over many years. They they. Do you think it's because people are just not interested enough in politics themselves to, to find out what the real issues are that people support, that they need to dumb it down, make it, simplify it, and, and you've got to vote, and, and it's whoever does it the best, and social media has a big play in this, to, to, uh, to bring something to someone to power that actually shouldn't really be there, but they've just done it because they've been able to market themselves better than anyone else. I think, 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 um, think they appeal to people's fears. Mm. You know that the one of the problems that's you know part of the sort of globalized you know liberalism in our sense is that to some extent, I suppose there's been a, a devaluation of traditional identities about nation, family, community. And a promotion of identities based on individual identity mm. and aspiration. Yes. So you can be what you want, you know. And and I think that's that's deeply disturbing for many people. I mean, a friend of mine 
uh, wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Road to Somewhere, which says that you know 75% of people in the world, you know, they their main identity is not with what they want to be, what they aspire to. It's who they. It's what they're attached to. It's their community. It's their family. It's their and people. You know, most people grow up and live and die in their their community. Yes. They don't move out that much. Um, mm. I mean, there's some geographical mobility. You know, perhaps more in the U.S. than. But you know, a lot of people just they they kind of quite like where they are. Thank you very much. Mm. And you know, my mum, for example, who died last year. I mean, she never left. Sheffield Six. You know, mm. she was always there. <laughs> Different houses, but always there. Okay. And it's it's like that's where who she was. Yes. Yeah. And she was comfortable there. She's comfortable yeah. there, and a lot of people are. You know, I've got a lot of friends, family friends, Keith and Ken in Sheffield who are, you know, been there all their lives. But I wonder whether this that the, there's been like the, in the last so sort of 10, 15 years where people have traveled a lot and gone, uh, gone to many, many places and have moved away. And suddenly with, with COVID and lockdowns, people's view of their, their, where they are now has, has been, they've been able to reevaluate it. And actually, I wonder whether people are coming, back coming to back roots. to their roots. And, and this is taking effect again. Um, I think it's true. I think it is part of what's going on. I mean, I think there is a bit of a revaluation of roots, but I still think, you know, fundamentally, the majority are do identify with their roots. It's yeah. it's the, there's a there's a detachment though from the rich and powerful from that mm. who do tend to be more mobile and more aspirational and and I think you want to get on. It's not the way it is. You don't stay where you are. Yeah, I think that there's there's a hesitate to use a word like metropolitan elite but there is a truth in this right mm. I and mean, there's a sort of there's a bogusness for example about this government's talking about leveling up because they don't they don't they don't really mean it they don't mm. even turn up at conferences where the issue is going to be discussed right it's not really that big a, it's, it's it's more about a kind of form of clientelism they think if they talk that way they're able to keep getting the votes of working class people in the north of england you know, the, the the old red wall will continue to vote Tory. That's kind of the assumption. So we've got to talk about levelling up. Don't need to do very much about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think moving back to Brazil, of course, I mean, yeah. you know, Brazil is also a country that's, that's riven by these divisions between aspirational people who aspire to particularly American lifestyles and prosperity, and, and people who, who have European cultural values or American cultural values. And, and then there are people who live in small towns in the interior who are much more conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they may, they may watch Netflix or whatever, but my wife's family, which, you know, lived in Salvador for the last 50 years or so, she has seven brothers and sisters, and only one has, apart from herself, only one has left Brazil. And one other sister is now living in a place called Uberlandia in Minas Gerais State, yeah. which is a fair way away to the south, but a similar kind of slightly insular place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that that is not atypical. Mm. You know, that uh, I've got other, I've got another friend from Salvador who we saw this weekend, very similar familial background. You know, sort of people haven't moved. No. Um, and their concerns are very different to, you know, they don't, 
they don't like necessarily the big city. You know, people kind of, I think, I find people in Sheffield who, oh, it must be awful living in London. <laughs> but that's, you just put the words in my mouth. I mean, I think in London here, we are in some kind of bubble where we live in the world because there are people from all around the world. And we don't necessarily recognize or remember that how many people live in their home and are happy to live in the suburbs or in their own town and, and yeah. don't want to move. But because we have moved, you, you make an assumption that everybody else is moving, yeah. but they're not, are they? Yeah. yeah. I mean, our experience, you know, where we met four years ago at a, at a, at a, at a you know, the top of an old car park in Peckham at yes. a bar, and then meet again four years later is, is not typical for, no. for your, your range of the number of people you see uh, if you're living in a place like London or New York or Hong Kong is just but I suppose particularly London and New York, really, it's, it's, it's very great. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's not so great in, you know, in Cuenca in, in Spain or Ubalandia in Brazil. It's just you live quieter, more, maybe, you know, less less agitated lives. Mm, more cohesive, even. More cohesive, maybe less, less potential, maybe more boring, some would say. Mm. Uh, you know, more predictable, maybe. More predictable. Or, or just... Just a bit more stable, even. Yeah, <laughs> there may be a joy in you know you maybe have a joy in going on the same walk every day for every day of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the BBC poet in in Macmillan, he goes out every morning and he lives in Barnsley, and every morning he gets up at six o'clock and he goes for a walk. Yeah. To do his poetry. I mean, he's obviously he's kind of a metropolitan, but he's a, yeah. he's a classic example of someone who has that combines that with an attachment to roots. Yes, yes. I suppose it's it's the way you look at life, whether uh, you can look at life and every day is a different day and you're seeing and experiencing different things every day. And whereas you have to go somewhere else to have that experience and to feel that you're having a different day, it's it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah. It's that sort of yes. um, I think it's, aspirations yeah. and inspirations. But then, yeah, absolutely. But then, but then, the, you know, the, 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 there's a. It's it's also about speed and sure slow, fast yeah. and slow time. And, yeah. and if you if you get into slow time, you don't really want to move that much because mm. there's a lot. If you get into slow time, you start to noticing things, notice things that you wouldn't necessarily notice if you're moving at the speed of light all the time. Yeah. And I think this was very much true in the lockdown when I wrote the book. And I think I was able to, you know, if I'd been, I could have done more reporting. I spent, um, I did three, well, I did, effectively, I did four trips in between 2018 and 19. I did four trips to Brazil, 2020, really. And, you know, spent probably about a period in total of about three, four months there writing the book and I, and built on having lived there before and obviously having made regular trips back uh, in the interim. But, um, you know, really, if they'd not been for the lockdown, maybe I'd have gone back more and it would have been more agitated process because I think I, you know, you slow down and you start to absorb things. Mm. You know, there's a lot of stuff to, there's a lot to absorb, a lot of detail to think about. And sometimes you just have to slow down and do that and not be, you know, so... You know, not have such urgency. Yes, yes. No, no, good point. 
Shall we stop it yeah, there? Yeah, we could stop there because it's half past one. More to follow, guys. This podcast has been recorded in two parts, and in the second part, we will be outside walking and talking around the east part of London. So stay tuned for part two of my discussion with Richard Lapper about Brazil, politics, and of course, his book, Beef, Bible, and Bullets. <laughs>